Good morning, Door Creek. Good to be together. And if you're a guest here, welcome. My name's Mark, one of the pastors, and maybe you uh, were with us. There's like 800 people here for the family fun night. What a great event that was. Maybe you're back from that. Thanks for coming back and checking us out. Glad that you're here. I want to also say thanks for your generosity in last weekend's offering. So if you were here, we said a portion, a tenth of it is going to go to Liberia. So over $5,000 is going to Liberia to do a lot of good to encourage our brothers and sisters who are really, really going through it. So remember we were praying for Pastor Varney, one of the church plant pastors, we just found out this week that um, the story continues to unfold, and, and it's just so sad. So what, what I told you is that he lost his daughter and he lost his wife, and what I found out in clear details this week was his 25-year-old daughter who contracted at first Ebola, that she died, and then within that next 24-hour period, his wife Rose delivered a baby who died after 30 minutes, And then she began to bleed out. And because there is um, a curfew instituted, he couldn't get her to a hospital that night. And so he went in the morning to the closest hospital that was just doing Ebola patients, so she couldn't go into there. And as he's taking her to the hospital, she dies, to another hospital, she dies. Three people in 24 hours. And then we just found out he also has tested positive for Ebola. And so, I mean, it's just, it's heartbreaking. So let's just continue to pray. Pastor Varney's name is Wallace. So he's one of the church plant pastors of our sister church in Monrovia, Liberia, that has started a church in another part of the city. And so this this continues, it's, it's long from over and we, we enter into their sufferings and mourning and whatever we can do, we are happy to do that. That's what we're about when we talk about changing lives to change the world. And uh, thanks for being part of that. You know, let's just, let's just pray for our brothers and sisters right now, for Pastor Varney. I'm just going to lead us in a time of prayer, just some silence for us to just enter in and pray, and then I'll close. Lord, thank you for the truth that says that your spirit actually takes the groans of our heart and brings them before you. And we just don't have words. We, we, we have articulated groans. This news just knocks us off of our feet. Um, Lord, we pray for your mercy, your mercy, your mercy. We pray for strength. We pray that you would heal Pastor Varney, even as he's in a treatment center right now. We pray that you'd encourage Pastor Matthew. We pray for uh, those who are mourning, that they would find comfort. We pray that those who know and love you would remember that you are acquainted with suffering that you sent your son in this world to end suffering, 
through his sufferings, that you watched your son bleed out, if you will, on the cross. And we pray that you would do what only you can do and bring good out of this. And somehow, Lord, we pray that all that's going on over there with our brothers and sisters would cause us all to lean on you more. And so we do right now. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ who who, uh, suffered the worst and through that brought out the best. And and it's his, his name we pray, amen. So Luke chapter two, we're finishing out chapter two today. And I wanna start by just a quote. And it's a quote that goes back hundreds of years from a man named Thomas Fuller who said this, God is not good when we expect better. When, when we come to life and say, man, I deserve better, I expected better in my marriage, in my career, in my financial situation, it's super easy then to say, because it's not better, God, I don't think you're good, at least not right now and at least not to me. God is not good when we expect better. The title of today's message is called Unexpected because what Luke's going to do is move us from this unlikely savior to just expounding on this unlikely savior who's very unexpected. He comes on the scene and we're expecting a halo. He comes on the scene and we're expecting a crown. And what we find out, he's an ordinary Jewish boy who's not going to wear a crown as he establishes kingdom, but he's going to bear a cross. He's going to suffer. And he introduces us to this unexpected savior who shows up as a Jewish boy, God in the flesh, not expecting better from the beginning of his life to the end. And when we understand and come to grips with this profound paradox that the king of kings came as a baby, born in a stable, laid in a manger to peasant parents, Joseph and Mary, not expecting better, all of a sudden we understand the goodness of God exceeds our wildest expectations. And that's what he's introducing us to. And as he introduces us to this unexpected savior, we understand the uniqueness of Christ. He's not just like any other prophet, He's not like any other savior and his father is not like any other God. And we understand what we're to expect in this life and how the sufferings of Christ gives us hope in the midst of things that would lead us to say something that his mother said. Jesus, why have you treated us like this? That's like a quote when we get to the end of this story. So we're going to have a little account about his infancy that talks about he didn't expect better from the beginning, his humble beginnings, and it's going to take us to his future destiny 
And then it's going to end with a story in the middle. When he's 12, he gets lost in the temple. Maybe you know that story, maybe you don't. You've heard of Home Alone? This is Temple Alone. And after three days of looking, she says, Jesus, why have you treated us like this? How could you do this to us? And maybe Mary's question isn't too far from your question. So that's where we're going today. Grab your Bible and let's dig in Luke chapter 2. If you're new to the Bible, man, if you don't have a Bible, like, let us get you a Bible. So you can grab a Bible at the table. And as you're always coming in here, that's what we do here. We're trying to explain the Bible and how it comes to bear. So you maybe have it on your phone, on a tablet. Grab a Bible in the back. You can walk and get it right now. That's what we want to do. That's what I want to do right now is to walk through verses 22 through 52, 21 through 52 right now. All right. So the beginnings, verse 21. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. So the law of Moses would be what we have in our Bibles, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. They brought him to the Lord as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now, what I want us to understand is what Luke is doing here as he presents the details of his circumcision, of his presentation and dedication as the law prescribed is he's letting Theophilus, his friend, right, who's this Gentile, very likely new believer, know is that Jesus just came on the scene and he looks like any other Jewish boy. Because any Jewish boy was being circumcised on the eighth day because that's what the law required. Any firstborn male was being presented to God because that's what the law required. And so they were doing what any God-fearing set of parents would do with their children, with their firstborn son. There's nothing unusual about it. Now, it's probably good for us to understand this concept of firstborn because it actually has everything to do with what we sometimes talk about, and that is giving a portion of of our earnings back to God. So the firstborn, the Bible says, belongs to God. Why does the firstborn belong to God? Because everything belongs to God. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all who live in it. And so the concept of the firstborn is the one firstborn son represents all the children. He belongs to the Lord as a representation that they all belong to the Lord. We give a first part of our crops because all of our crops, the first part of our flocks because the whole flock belongs to God. We give a portion of our earnings, that tithe, that tenth, representing that, God, you have all of me, right? So that's what's going on here. But that's that's ordinary. Now we're expecting that as he paints this beautiful portrait of Jesus, we're looking for gold. We're looking for glitter. We're looking for glitz. We're expecting a halo, But he paints with muted colors, and he presents this ordinary Jewish boy, but there's one detail he gives us, hello, doves and pigeons, where we go, oh, but there's something more, that 
Luke wanted Theophilus and us to know. Not only was he an ordinary Jewish boy, but he was born to peasants, peasant parents who were poor. He was born into poverty. That's what that's about. Look at it again, verse 24. A pair of doves or two young pigeons as the law required. That's what they brought. Now, we can go back to Leviticus 5.7. You'll see it here on the screen. But if he cannot afford a lamb, then he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation for the sin that he's committed two turtle doves or two pigeons. It's not what we expected. The king of kings, the creator, John tells us, of the whole universe, that he comes and is born, where? In a stable. That he's laying, where? In a manger. That his parents couldn't afford to buy a lamb. They scraped together enough to buy two doves or two pigeons. And we've got to ask ourselves, because what we've been seeing here is God is fulfilling his plan. And there's details that were written about Christ's coming and his birth that were predicted hundreds of years before he came. So it wasn't an accident. It's not like, well, God just knows we're really into rags to riches stories. And so he had one of his own. Jesus coming to this earth, by the way, is not a rags to riches story. What is it? It's a riches to rags story. So why? When he could have been born to any family, in any city, why is he born into poverty? Why does Luke, like over twice as much of any of the other gospel writers, talk about the poor? Why does he present Jesus moving towards the poor, hanging out with the poor? Why is that? Because God sent his son to be a savior of all people. The people that are pushed away and marginalized aren't pushed away and neglected by God. He sent his son to identify with the poor. He sent his son to come for the poor, to comfort the poor. He identified with them. He came in humility, profound humility. Here's what Paul says about Jesus' poverty and how it works as Jesus is setting up a kingdom that is completely upside down, completely paradoxical. Here's what Paul says. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. When was he rich? From eternity in heaven, yet for your sake he became poor. When did he become poor? When he was born and he took on flesh, when he came into the family of Joseph and Mary, so that you and me, through his poverty, might become what? Rich. Now, be careful. Be careful how you understand the riches of Christ. There's a lot of people who are going to say, and here's what it means. And they start telling you about all the zeros that are going to be at the end of your bank account's total. What are the riches of Christ? They are not the stuff that accountants can add up. It's his love. It's his mercy. It's his grace. It's his forgiveness. It's his truth. It's his hope. It's his wisdom. It's the community that he puts us in. The riches of Christ that sustain us, the abundant riches that give us a taste of the abundant life in Christ today that is just a down payment of what is to come. 
It's all of that through his poverty, through his poverty. And his humility sets us up to live like him, to love mercy, to do justice, to walk humbly with God. That's what God requires, Micah 6.8. So what does it look like to live humbly? Joseph and Mary, I think, are a great example. To live humbly is to see ourselves as God sees us and then live rightly before God. So what do we know about Joseph and Mary? They're, they're taking God at his word. What, are they, what is he telling us about his parents, Jesus' parents? That they are obeying the word of God. That's what faith does. We take God at his word. We believe the promises. They've been doing that. When angel Gabriel said to Mary, you're going to bear a son, it's going to be this mysterious conception through the Spirit, and he's going to be the Son of the Most High. She's trusting, believing, and now they're obeying his commands. That's what we see here, this humility of living life under God, under God's word. So he moves from his humble beginnings where we expect the halo, and we see something very ordinary, and even more than that, poverty, poverty. And then he moves to his unexpected destiny. Jesus didn't just not expect better at the beginning, but all the way through to the end. We're expecting to see a conqueror. Don't forget the context. They are living in their own promised land that God set apart for them. And every corner, they see Roman centurions and soldiers that remind them they are an oppressed people. They're not a free people. They're looking for a deliverer. It would have been really easy to look for the conqueror, but they're given the suffer to, to expect victory and what they see is suffering. It's not what we expected. He's not like any other king. This is not like any other kingdom. So enter Simeon. Verse 25, now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous, that is, he lived rightly before God. He was a just man. He did right. And he was devout, devoted to God. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Now, when I hear the consolation of Israel, I'm, my, my first word association, is that the booby prize? Consolation prize? Doesn't it sound like that. that that's a, consolation. He's waiting for the comforter. He's picking up on the prophet Isaiah, who says there's this coming one who's going to be the comforter. He's going to bring comfort to those who are oppressed. He's going, to be comf- he's going to comfort God's people when he frees them from their slavery. He's a comforter, the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was on him, verse 26. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. So that just lets us know, everybody is still looking for the Messiah. He hadn't come. The Spirit made it clear to him, before you die, Simeon, you are going to see him. Verse 27, moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. The Spirit does that. He nudges you to places and people. Simeon, you need to get in the court. So he does. 
And when the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took it in his arms and praised God, saying, so the, temp, the, the spirit led him into the courts and then led him to the parents, to the baby. He takes Jesus and filled with the spirit, he prophesies over Jesus. And here's what he says. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you've prepared in the sight of all nations, all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. Sovereign God, I'm ready to go. You've been good on your word. I'm holding, what does he call Jesus? Your salvation. Who's he a savior for? All the nations. He's going to be a light of revelation. That is, he is going to reveal. He's going to point to. He's going to explain, make known who God is and what he's like and why he, God loves even Gentiles and why salvation is for all people, not just the promised people. And he is going to be the glory He is going to be the national treasure. He is going to be the pride of the Jewish people because they will offer the Savior who brings blessing to the world and all the nations will come to him. And if you think about it, at this point in the storyline of Luke, we haven't heard anything new because that's the same thing that the angel said to the shepherds who told it to Joseph and Mary. Good news of great joy, which is for all people, not some people. Today, in the city of David, in Bethlehem, a Savior has been born who is Christ, the Messiah, the Lord. There's nothing new here. But there is something completely unexpected in what follows. Verse 33, the child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them, that is Joseph and Mary, and said to Mary, his mother. Now another word of prophecy about the child and about her future. Check this out. This child, speaking of Jesus, right, is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel. He's going to be a watershed kind of guy. This prince of peace is going to divide things up, split things up. Some are going to rise and some are going to fall. And he's going to, he is to be a sign that points to God, right? A sign that points to something beyond himself of God's love that will be spoken against. He's going to be a sign that points to God's great love, but he's going to be opposed. Spoken against, opposed. So that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And here's the hard word to Mary. And a sword will pierce your own soul too. So now this is something new. This is something really important to understand about Jesus. Really important to understand about following Jesus today. So don't miss this. They're pinning their hopes on this child to be the comforter of God's people. And what they're told is God's blessing and God's comfort will be meted out through the son who will suffer. 
And those who love the son, like Mary, will suffer pain too. So the sword, so there's two swords in uh, New Testament time that we get in the, in, the, in the scriptures. So there's that little short sword that Peter pulled out when he knop, knocked off Malchus's ear. It's a little dagger. Well, this one doesn't fit in your pocket. This is the long sword. He said, this is a big sword, Mary. This is figurative. Is going to pierce your own. So intense will be your grief. It'll be like a big sword was just plunged through your heart. It's not what we expect. We're not expecting that blessing to all the families would come through one's sufferings, the Son of God's sufferings. We're not expecting that, that those who love Christ would suffer. We're not expecting that this one who Isaiah calls the Prince of Peace is going to bring hostility and division. We're not expecting that. And Jesus didn't expect to be treated better at his birth, nor to the very end. And when we think about those who opposed Jesus in his lifetime, let's catch up with the report. So when, when you survey all the people who, who really were against Jesus, the highlight group is not the Romans. That's who was really after Jesus. You know who the group is that is most opposed to Jesus? It has this caption over them, religious, religious people like the Pharisees, religious people, like the Apostle Paul, who was Saul, who was chasing down God's people to put him in prison and worse. And when Christ reveals himself to him on the way to Damascus, he says, Paul, why are you persecuting who? Me. The people who had problems with Jesus, who opposed Jesus, were the kind of people you go, I'm so glad they're my neighbor. They're such good people. They have such good morals. Opposed to Jesus. And we're going to have to figure this out. Why would they be opposed? Because look what it says about him as, as, as we keep reading the text that he, in verse 40, is filled with wisdom and grace. Why, why, why would they be opposed? But not everybody opposes Jesus. There are those like Anna that we meet next to like Simeon, thanks and praises God for Jesus, worships. Verse 36, there was also a prophet, Anna. In other words, Simeon's a prophet, Anna's a prophet. What's a prophet? Prophets speak for God. Prophets don't, it's easy to think, prophets predict the future. Yeah, sometimes that's going on a little bit, right? With, with Simeon's prophecy, about the sword, about rising and falling and being opposed. There is this future prediction, right? So it's, it's not just foretelling, but it's forthtelling. They're speaking to God's people, led by the Spirit, words to strengthen, encourage, and comfort. She's a prophetess, Simeon's a prophet. What we know about Anna is this. She's the daughter of Penuel, right? Verse 26, from the tribe of Asher. She was very old. 
She'd lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84 or could be read. And then she was a widow for 84 years. And so it's really fun to read the, the, uh, the theologians here and they're going, man, she's probably like over 100. Well, the point of how old she is is the next part of the verse. She's been walking with God for a long, long time. So here's what it says. She never left the temple. We don't know anything from history that said they actually had rooms for widows in the temple. So maybe they did in her case. Very likely not. And it's just saying she was always around. She never left the temple but worshipped night and day. Just like we say, man, I've been working night and day. What do we mean? A lot. She was in the temple a lot, all the time, worshipping, fasting, praying. And coming up to them, to Joseph and Mary, at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child, about Jesus, to all who are looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the city, representing the whole of God's people, of all of Israel, for all who were looking for this coming Savior who would free them, redeem them, free them. And so Luke says, Theo, look, I know maybe you're thinking when I told you the part about the, the shepherds that they're a bunch of scoundrels and you're not sure to believe their report. I know you may be thinking there's some country bumpkins out there in the fields. I just want you to know it wasn't just the shepherds who had that view of Jesus. I want you to hear the testimony of Simeon and Anna. These are godly people who've been walking with God for a long time and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they prophesy that he is the Christ, that he would suffer. He wants Theophilus to know that he's not like any other God. And he is this child, verse 39, who returns home to Nazareth, right? So when Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. Now, Matthew will tell us that before they return to Nazareth, they take a trip down to Egypt because the angel comes to Joseph and said, Herod's going to kill your son, and so you better get up right now and flee. Luke's not giving us a chronology here. He's putting it all together. He doesn't give us that because it's not important to the portrait he's painting. But we know that's happened from Matthew's account. So they go back to Nazareth. After they come back, Matthew tells us, from Egypt. And here's what we know about Jesus, that he grew. And the child grew and became strong. And he was filled with wisdom and the grace of God was on him. Look down at verse 52. Same idea. Here we got the bookends, right? And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. So why, why does Luke not just stop there? I mean, 40 ends just like 52. Why do we need to have the story of Jesus being lost in the temple? And by the way, he's the only one who tells a story. And by the way, it's the only story in the Bible that we have after the infancy accounts of his birth of Jesus as a growing 12-year-old or at any point before he's 30 years old and comes on the scene. It's the only story. So we've got to ask ourselves, why didn't he just end at 40? Because that's how he ends in 52. And and the reason why is because he's going to give us some hints here to this really important question. Why, what is it about Jesus that divides things up, that some people rise because of Jesus and others fall? What is it about Jesus that some worship him and others hate him, that some follow him and others resist him? People are opposed to him. Why is it that people would crucify the Prince of Peace, the Son of God? 
who didn't expect better, who lived in humility. Why is it that people would oppose him? The story tells us. The story tells us the answer to that question. But it also gives a new piece of information. And the new piece of information is, Luke in this story gives us Jesus' take on Jesus as a 12-year-old. So he's heard the takes on Jesus from the angels, from the shepherds, from Elizabeth and Zechariah and Joseph and Mary and Simeon and Anna. And now he says, hey, Theo, I just want you to know, this is what Jesus thought about himself. So this is the first time we get Jesus' take on Jesus. And as we read these last verses, we also understand that he lived in humility throughout his life, not just at the beginning and not just at the end. He didn't expect better when he went home with his parents. And verse 51 tells us that he obeyed them. He didn't pull the God card and say, well, wait a minute, do you know who I really am? Because I guess you don't. I'm actually God. I don't have to obey no one. He's giving us all that. The answer to why is he opposed, Jesus on Jesus, and how that's how he lived his life, not expecting better. Not just at the beginning, not just at the end, but all the way through. All right, so here we go, verse 41. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. All right, so you're new to the Bible? You forget this one? Passover goes back to the Exodus. You know what the Exodus is? It was God delivering the people of Israel from slavery after 400 years of oppression in Egypt. The Passover celebrated that deliverance. The Passover goes back to the 10th plague, the angel of death that was going to kill all the firstborn of all the families and all the crops, of all the flocks and herds from Jews and of Egyptians. And if you didn't put the blood of the one-year-old spotless lamb over the doorpost of your house, the angel of death would take your firstborn. But because of their faith and they took God at his word, the angel passed over. It's that celebration. And by the way, that's the very festival that's going on in Jerusalem when Jesus hangs on a cross, the Passover. So when he was 12 years old, verse 32, 42, they went up to the festival according to the custom. So that's a 70-mile journey from Nazareth up in north in Galilee down to Jerusalem. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. This is temple alone time, all right? But they were unaware of it thinking he was in their company. In other words, they're going as a family. This is their tradition. Like they camp out. This is like awesome. It's like a family reunion. It's this high festival of the, of the people of God. They're going in a caravan. There's family, there's cousins, there's aunts and uncles. They're all together, friends like uncles and aunts. They're going together. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among the relatives and friends. Hey, You know, we haven't seen Jesus for a while. Do you guys know where Jesus is? You don't? Do you guys know where Jesus is? You don't? Have you seen? You haven't? Uh Uh-oh. We got a problem here. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem. So they've traveled about a day, right? So now they got a day's journey back, and they went to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days. So this is now, they've slept two nights now, and... They, they haven't found the boy. Hey, have you ever lost your child like for a couple of minutes? Oh, my word. 
We lost Luke when he was just a little kid at the Minnesota State Fair. And when we caught up to it, like I did one of those, where's Luke? And Larry goes, where's Luke? That had been like 20 minutes. There's like a million people, and I was sure half of them were creeps. And I was freaking out. 20 minutes at the family fun night. I'm sitting having a conversation in the fireside room, and a mom runs in, and she didn't have to say anything. I could see by the look of her eyes she was looking for one of her children. There's a really big difference between three minutes and three days. But we get it if we've ever lost our kids or been lost. I've got that story too. <laughs> Another sermon. So um, after three days, they found him where? In the temple courts. Meaning they weren't looking there. They didn't go. He, they didn't go. Oh, I, we know where he's going to be. They found him in the temple courts. What's he doing? Sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. They didn't just say, isn't he just this charming little 12-year-old who's interested? No. They're amazed at his understanding. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. And man, we get it. Now, moms, just relax. When I, I'm about to say something, and it may be a little personal, but we get why Mary is perfecting what mothers do so well, the guilt trip. Moms, just take it easy. You do that because you love us. You love us. She loves it. This was so painful. She wants to make it clear. Jesus, don't ever do this again. Do you understand? How could you treat me like this? And the tears flowed. We've been there, right? Where some of us are living there, right? Man, that's powerful stuff. A mother's persuasiveness, we'll call it. How could you treat us like this? How could you treat us like this? Now, here's the gold. Here's Jesus on Jesus. Verse 49. Why were you searching for me? He asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? The temple is the place associated with the presence of God. You could also translate that. You'll see it in your footnote in a lot of your translations. Didn't you know I had to be about my father's business? He didn't say the fathers. He said my father. What Jesus' take on Jesus is that he's the son of God and God is his father. It's what John says in John 10.30 when Jesus says, I and the father are one. This answers the question. Not only what does Jesus think about Jesus, that he's the son of God, which by the way, is nothing new, is it? That's what Gabriel said to Elizabeth in chapter 132, he will be great and he will be the son of the most high. He'll be the son of God. In 135, Gabriel says he'll be called the son of God. In 143, Elizabeth calls him my Lord. Every time the word Lord is, it's associated with God. Zechariah says the same thing in 176. The angels say it in 211. Messiah, Savior, Lord. Simeon, Anna, everybody's saying it. Jesus now says it. I'm Lord. And now we get why he is so div divisive, why he divides things, why he's so polarizing, because Jesus doesn't leave us with middle ground. He doesn't give us this easy spot where we go, 
I don't know if he's God, but I think he's pretty cool. I like some of the, I mean, his followers, they're a little weird, but I think Jesus is pretty good with me. I like his teachings. I like the way he lived life. I think he was a good moral man. He doesn't give you that option. You're you're finding a, a comfort zone with Jesus that Jesus doesn't give you. Lewis says what? He's either a liar, he's a lunatic who thinks he's a poached egg, I think is how the quote goes, or he is who he said he is. He's Lord. And we do this thing with Jesus where we, we, we say, actually, there actually is a third spot. It's a third place. It's kind of a comfortable place. And he's just a good guy. He doesn't give us that. He's the son of God. And that is so polarizing that when we catch up with that concept at the end of his life, as they're trying to find witnesses to, to corroborate enough evidence to get him crucified, they can't find these witnesses to do that. So they finally just say, do you think you're the son of God? And Jesus' answer is, well, let me think, it's not, let me think about that. He says, I am. And that's when the high priest tears his clothes. And that's where he says he's blaspheming. He is taking the place of God. That's Jesus on Jesus. That's why he divides. And our response to Jesus, Simeon tells us in his prophecy, reveals the stuff of my heart. And by the way, you could be opposing Jesus like as long as you've been around and thinking about Jesus, you've been like, "Uh uh-uh. Or you could just be opposing Jesus right now or at this season of your life, or in an area of your life. It reveals what's in our heart, namely pride, that I don't need a savior, that I know better than God, that he's not who he said he is. He didn't expect better from beginning to end. And as they went down to Nazareth, as he went down to Nazareth, verse 51, with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. God is not good when we expect better. The goodness of God exceeds our wildest expectations when we understand Jesus from beginning to the end never expected better when he deserved it. When he deserved it. So Luke's saying, Theo, I'm writing this so that you'll be certain, so your faith will grow strong. The things you've been taught about Jesus, that they're really true. We're reading this gospel to strengthen our faith. And what do we hear? What did Theo hear again? Hey, this is the Savior for all people. He's a light to the Gentiles. He is my Savior. He identified with the poor. And we've got to ask ourselves, is that us? I mean, that's what we long for when we say, we desire to be a Christ-centered church for all people. When we, when we have this value, compassionate service, humbly extending Christ's compassion to those in need, that's what we desire. That's what we're about as we send monies to to Monrovia right now. 
when we're reaching out to homeless people or, or, or all the kinds of people that are in vulnerable situations in our own community. That's what we're about as a church. But we got to ask ourselves, I'm a follower of Jesus. Is that who I identify with? Do I have any connection with the poor? And I would say I've got like a little snippet of that every week. And you know what the interesting thing is? As I go and tutor, my sweet little fifth grader girl, now for the second year, it's like the highlight of the week. It's the highlight of the week. And I just wonder if we're missing out some of the best that God has for us. This is not what God wants from us. This is what he wants for us. As we move towards the vulnerable and the marginal, we are moving along with his heart. These things aren't important to God because it's in the law. The law is written because it's on God's heart. And we got to ask ourselves individually, as a family, as a couple, as a group of friends who love Christ that live together, is this us? Do we identify with the poor? Jesus didn't identify with the poor because of his politics. He didn't identify with the poor because of his theology and his theological convictions. It's because who God is. And he actually gives preferential treatment to the marginalized. Hence, you've got laws on the kind of sacrifice that a poor person. Hence, you've got laws. So just keep watching. Keep watching as the harvesters go grab it all. They're going to get every bit of the soybean field. They're going to get every bit of the cornfield. But not under God's rule in Israel. Leave it on the edges for the poor. It was written in the law of God because it's on the heart of God. He loves the poor, the widow, the orphan, the alien. And we've got to ask ourselves, I'm a Christ follower. We're Christ followers. Is that in us? Or have, have we actually reduced this into some kind of sociological, political, theological construct? This is God's heart. Is it my heart? I think I was just preaching. Um, well, you know what? Clapping's great. Preaching, it's great. Living, it's hard. So there's a second thing that's really important to grow our faith, to grow our faith. Luke reminds us that Jesus' blessing comes through his suffering. We're not expecting that. The blessing comes through suffering, and those who love Jesus like Mary will suffer. I don't know if anybody told you that when you started to follow Christ. I don't know if you had this idea, man, my life is a mess. I'm going to give it all to Jesus, and it's just going to like pixie dusk and a wand, and it's just going to settle, and everything's going to just go right side up, and it's just going to be tipping, toeing through the tulips, easy cheesy pie, and my life is just going to be beautiful. If that's what you expected, I know you're disappointed. I know you're frustrated. I know you're saying like Mary, Jesus, we deserve better. Why have you treated me like this? It's really important to understand that when Jesus said, if you want to follow me, take up your what? Your cross. Now, what is the cross a symbol of if it's not suffering? He didn't say, hey, if you want to follow me, go find a crown. Because, dude, we are ruling. We are ruling. Go find the crown. It's cross time now. It's crown later. Expect suffering. Our Savior suffered. Our God is acquainted with suffering. 
when Pastor Varney witnessed the unimaginable of his wife bleeding out amidst all that which is crazy and doesn't make any sense. I, I pray that he would remember that his God watched his son bleed out to end suffering one day. That's not how we're usually thinking. God's blessing comes through suffering. Those who love Jesus will suffer. In this world, Jesus says, you will have, how does it go? Trials, tribulation, trouble. His own brother says, consider it pure joy when, not if, when you encounter various trials. And see, when we expect better, Fuller is right. God's no longer good. And we learn a lot about our faith when we get through suffering. And one of the things that our suffering does, it brings us back to God's suffering and the hope in one who suffered to end all suffering. So Mary's pain is associated with Jesus' pain. And Jesus' pain was to set all things right. That's begun, but it's not completed. But we are promised in Christ, through Christ, through his resurrection from the dead, that there will be a day when there is no Ebola. There will be a day when there is no hate crime. There will be a day when there is no suffering and rape and and incest and all the craziness of this world. It's going to be gone. No sorrow, no sickness, no pain, no suffering. But this ain't heaven, folks. And these bodies won't last. So where are you at with Jesus? Really? Opposed? Praising God. And if we're opposed... What's it saying about our hearts? How cool to catch up with this story written 2,000 years ago as you honestly say, yeah, I'm, I'm opposed, to go actually Simeon under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit said you would be. He knew that. And maybe it's just time to reconsider Maybe it's time to just reconsider this whole thing about, so how's that working out for me, being opposed, resisting God's gift, his Savior, salvation? How's that working, resisting Jesus? And, and, and stay away from the, well, let me tell you about my bank account. Actually, the Bible works out bank accounts and says, you think that's an asset, it's actually a liability. So let me talk to you about your relationships. How's that going right now? Let me talk to you about all the things that you've been successful in and contentment. Let's talk about that. Let me, let me ask you about peace in the midst of things that are crazy and don't make any sense. Do you know that at, the, at your heart of hearts? Or are you looking, desperately looking for something else, the next thing? Let me ask you about your hope for the future. Let me ask you, as you build a life of self-sufficiency, is that making you more endearing to the people around you? Do you sense that?
Today's the day to follow Christ, to go low. That's the way in, is to go low. So if you have a chance to go to Bethlehem, you will undoubtedly see the Church of the Nativity. So I'm going to give you a heads up. It's one of the creepier places I've ever been. This is, it was just weird. It was dark. I'm not talking about the lights. It was just weird. But I love the door. So look at this picture of the door. So the guy who built the door didn't lose his tape measure. The guy who lived, built the door wasn't like this short guy and thought, well, that's good enough for me. It's going to be good enough for everybody. It's built this way to remind us that the way into Christ is to get low. You got to bend. Hello, right? You got to go. What does Jesus say at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount? You, the kingdom of God belongs to the poor in spirit, to the humble, to those who come to God going, I don't have anything to bring. I don't have anything on the table. I'm completely dependent, like a child. The kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, belongs to little children, completely dependent upon their parents for everything, not most things, for everything. We get low. And today's the day to get low, to humble ourselves and trust that God's promises are all realized in Christ, to obey his commands, to turn away from these other things that aren't Jesus and turn to Christ. And the way we express that faith could be as simple as a prayer. Prayer doesn't bring you into relationship. It expresses our trust. That we're turning away from these other things that we've made into God's and we're trusting in Jesus. And some of us right now, we need to do that. God's calling you to do that. Some of us, God's calling us back because we've lost our way. We've actually lost Jesus along the way, like Joseph and Mary. And maybe you lost Jesus because it's been hard and you've just been focusing on this question. Why have you treated me like this, Jesus? Maybe some of us have lost Jesus because we just never checked. Glory and I get a call. It's 1.30 on a Sunday afternoon. We've got five kids. That's a lot of kids to keep track of. We're at friend's house for lunch. And my buddy Dave, who's a pastor at church, calls me and says, Hey, Mark, are you missing Claire? I'm going, no, but since you're asking, I probably am. Why? Well, she's here with me. Ah, I didn't know. I didn't know. Maybe you don't know. Because you haven't checked. Maybe you thought, well, Jesus is with someone else in the company. He's with someone else in the family. That's what they thought. Somebody else has got him. Isn't that good enough? Like, if my mom has him, if my dad has him, if my wife has him, if my husband has him, if our kids have him, isn't that good enough? No, it's not good enough. Because God doesn't have grandchildren. God doesn't have cousins. He doesn't have aunts and uncles. What he has is brothers and sisters. This is about you and Christ. Maybe we've lost Jesus because we've just been so busy. Busy trying to give our kids a better life. Busy with our demanding career. Busy taking care of aging parents. You know, you can lose Jesus being a pastor. And if that's true, you can lose lose him serving at church. Have you lost him at school, students? In the locker room? In rehearsals? In your marriage? At work? 
Let's pray. Father God, we bless you for your Son. The one who is fully God yet refused to be treated like God. Dying for people who desperately want to be treated like God. So forgive us. Give us faith and grace to turn away from everything that isn't Jesus. We want to trust in you. Give us that faith. And we confess who we are and what we've done. Fill our lives with thanks, with praise to you, God, for your son Jesus, and may we live like him, not expecting better, but serving and suffering and pointing people to the one who suffered to end all suffering. In Christ's name, God's people said,